Our Father, it is uh, a privilege to gather with your people, uh, not centered around excitement or or pomp, but around uh, your word and your sacrament and the cross of your Son. You are perfect in all your ways. From all time you had in mind that we would be your children through the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the duties of this Christian life which you've called us to do. Thank you for blessing us with the blessing of blessing those who will not bless us in return. Uh, thank you for hearing our prayers. Continue as we pray by the Spirit in the name of Jesus to shine your face upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and read God's Word together. First Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is God's word. You may be seated. There's there's much to do in our day and age about yeah, equality. You know, equality of men and women, equality of uh, the, tr- the gender issues, the homosexuality and transgender issues, uh, equality of race. And what we see a lot of is that equality means sameness. Let's just level it all out and we're all the same. One thing I've noticed in this text as we've gone through this section that's been clear to me is that we are all equal in Christ. But that, that, that does not mean that we are all the same. We all have our God-ordained uh, vocations. Vocation meaning calling, the work which God has called us to do and the role He's called us to play in, in our lives. So there's a diversity of vocation, even within the Christian church, even within Christ, wherein we are all the same in status. For example, uh, a governor is not the same as a citizen. A slave is not the same as a master, or a husband not the same as a wife. We all have different callings or different duties, different God-ordained roles to play in life. But in Christ, different roles do not mean that any one person is less than any other person. Uh, For example, a Christian governor is equal in God's eyes and in the church to Christian citizens. A slave is equal to his master, and a wife is equal to his husband. Uh, For example, Peter addresses both slaves and women in this passage that we've been going through, uh, and the very fact that he addresses them in a society that wouldn't really even recognize them, he addresses them and says, here's your role to play. That legitimizes their role within the church. So amongst all the diversity of vocations that we have 
in the church, we also have a unity of vocation. In other words, there's work which transcends our temporal societal occupations that needs to be done. So Peter here in these verses kind of funnels all these previous callings that we've been talking about into this single category when he says, finally now, all of you, all of you, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So no matter all of our other callings in life, it, there, there's this section here that is fundamental to all Christian calling. Peter here, he gives us five qualities of this uh, Christian laborer. So he begins here with unity of mind. Unity of mind is simply, it means like-mindedness. One lexicon said, having thoughts that follow the same path. You know, we as Christians, we have the same Bible. We have the same God. We have the same Holy Spirit who illumines us to read the Bible. We all have the same objective truth as Christians. And all of that sameness provides us a unity of thought, a a sameness of mind. Now, that is, uh, it does so broadly. We're not a a horde of, of clones, one after another, saying and doing the exact same things. But in full color, Though we have vast, vast differences of race and personality, culture, even uh, differences in time, we're united around this central truth. You know, that's what I love about the creeds and the confessions and, uh, is that even though I don't live in the same time period as Athanasius did, we both can confess the same Nicene Creed. It unites us. We have a unit. I have a unity of mind with this man who lived hundreds, thousands of years before I did, and even now I have unity with my brothers and sisters in China who who confess the Nicene Creed, or in Texas, or anywhere. We have a unity of mind which binds us together. Secondly, we have sympathy. He tells us to be sympathetic. So if the one is unity of mind, I think of this like unity of heart. Feeling the same feelings as, as other people do. You know, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In Hebrews, we're told that Jesus was tempted and is now able to sympathize with us. And so we follow in his footsteps of sympathy. That's a difficult calling, I think, sympathy is, because we can become jaded or calloused or we have our own wounds and our own pains and and opening ourselves up to be sympathetic to feel the pain of another person uh, is scary (laughs) and it can hurt but we are called here to be a people who feels what people around us feel we're called to be a caring people and while it can hurt it can also be joyous because we share in the joy of other people as well he says brotherly love. We're to have brotherly love. That's the word Philadelphia. We are, as I've mentioned before, a, a family. Which is wonderful in light of the teaching that he's been providing us with on the diversity within the church. We are all one family. And in the church, uh, it's, it's neat to me that, that 
in leadership, in eldership, if it's done right, you can have a businessman who makes millions of dollars and you can have the local janitor and they're equal and they're both elders within the church because that social status doesn't matter. We're all brothers and sisters, adopted sons and daughters of God in Jesus. And sometimes we fight like a family does. We're not a gang of buddies or of friends or a social club. We are a chosen people that God has chosen to place together. Just like you can't pick your family, you can't pick your church family either. God has elected us unto the church. And so we need to learn to get along and to have brotherly love. Fourth here is a tender heart. Uh, many just call this compassion. Uh, compassion is similar to th- sympathy, but it's distinct in that I think it's kind of the action of sympathy, the, the action that proceeds from sympathy. You, you see someone, you have sympathy for them, and you do something to alleviate their suffering. That, to me, is uh, compassion. Uh, the form of the word here used is a cool word, um, splanknon. It means bowels. It means your guts. So really what he's saying is, have tender innards. Have a tender inside. Finally, fifth, humble mind. So we're not to be proud in our thoughts. We need to have a willingness to learn and and be corrected. Um, But also note, this is not contrary to what he said before about unity of mind. Humility of mind isn't in contrast to objectivity in truth. True humility of mind is really found in submission to God's mind. Because you'll hear people say, well, if you believe in objective truth and you have all of your stuff figured out in your, your goofy confession there, that, that's arrogance. You, you can't know that much. And it's true. I think if you kind of strike the chords of of unity and objectivity in mind and the chord of humility of mind in that mindset, you're going to have dissonance there. But if you realize that that humility of mind is submission to God's mind, suddenly unity of mind and humility of mind have perfect harmony. So a few notes here about these five things just as a whole um, they're kind of essential qualities of the, the mind and heart for the Christian to carry out his vocation uh, I kind of th- think of them like th- if this is a calling for a job like a vocation a vocational job these are the things that would be on the list you have to have these these qualities to perform the job um, but it's very much different from that, those, those job postings because uh, unlike those qualities These are not possessed by our own education or our own life experience, but they flow out of a new life born in Christ. Um, So we see that these qualities are, first of all, found in the hearts of Christians. These are heart and mind attitudes. And secondly, that they need to, they, they find their truest expression first within the church, within the life of the church. And then after that, they flow out into our relationship with the world around us. And which is that's where he, uh, he turns next here in verse 9. 
uh, to the world around us primarily, I think. So in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So first off, Christians do do wrong to each other in the church. We're all firsthand witnesses of this. Um, and so the first place this principle is demonstrated is within the church. We're to have a forgiveness rather than repayment. Not gossip for gossip, but blessing for gossip. Not unkindness for unkindness, but blessing for kindness. Not lie for lie, but blessing. And the church should be a central place for forgiveness and mutual blessing. But I do think that kind of in the broader context, Peter here is referring more specifically to persecution at the hands of unbelief, unbelievers. Peter's audience here is suffering, as we've noted, uh, suffering alienation, separation probably from their family, probably attacks on their person or property or family. Uh, they're being maligned and disparaged. You can see that from the context of First Peter. And that suffering is that, fa- that valley of the shadow of death, which these saints follow their shepherd and overseer of their souls through. And so he says here, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Uh, this kind of harkens back to verse 23 of chapter 2 where he told us that Jesus was reviled and he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I think the Christian, I've seen that Christian responses to attacks on Christianity often drip with with venom, even in my own heart. It just, uh, it's oftentimes an ad hominem attack, uh, or you know, it's not a reasoned, heartfelt response from the Word of God. It's, it's to demean their intelligence, to shout them down rather than to listen, or to, to to put one person in a category by guilt of association when they don't belong there. And our response should really flow from those Christian qualities that we saw in verse 8. For example, that intellectual confidence that I talked about in our unity and knowing the truth and the humility based on the submission to God's mind, that produces that steadfastness under fire when we feel the pressure of persecution. If truth was just kind of a matter of opinion, then our ideas would be subject to that dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest mentality that that is the broader marketplace of ideas. But because our truth is not really our truth, but it's God's truth, and because it's the only true truth, our responses to the world should not be to engage in kind of lobbing grenades back and forth, but we should take that patient, slow, loving, merciful approach seeking not to destroy them, but to evangelize them and to open their minds to God's mind. Likewise, we can express sympathy and compassion to uh, persecutors or tormentors, um, perhaps understanding where they're coming from, (laughs) having pity on the, the fact that their foolish hearts are darkened and they're unregenerate. We can have the Spirit of Jesus when He says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. My mind has been drawn and is drawn through this section to our theology of 
victory here. Um, what is victory? It, it becomes a, a qu- big question in my mind. Uh, you know, in warfare or in politics, victory is often a, a slug for slug type of thing. The, to the victor goes to the spoils, and if you want to win, you got to hit back. But if the Christian worldview uh, slugged its way kind of to political dominance, to cultural dominance, uh, the question in my mind is, would we be any more victorious than we are right now? And I think that Rome, in the sense of Roman Catholic doctrine and Roman Catholicism, Rome did that. They slugged their way to the top, and it proved we're no less victorious. Luther, on the other hand, he presents us with what is often called the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. Uh, Carl Truman expresses these ideas in this way. He says, The theologians of glory, therefore, are those who build their theology in light of what they expect God to be like. And surprise, surprise, they make God to look something like themselves. The theologians of the cross, however, are those who build their theology in light of God's own revelation of himself in Christ hanging on the cross. So a couple examples of, of theologians of glory. We consider like first century Judaism looking for the Messiah to come and conquer Rome and, and to restore them to political and economic dominance. Or today, uh, Joel Osteen, the poor fellow, gets picked on so much. But he tells us, have your best life now. That's a theology of glory. Theologians of the cross uh, start with Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He goes on to say, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Another theologian of glory, Paul, in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And James, James chapter 1, this is how he starts his book, aside from the greeting in verse 1, in verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So I have friends who I would call theologians of glory, and they'll often say, that's how God worked before, but we need to look at what the Spirit is doing now. It's almost as as if God changed his MO. Suffering and persecution was the MO then, but now it's different. But I just have to always ask, the question, do all these biblical exhortations that I just read, or many, many more, no longer apply to the Christian life 2,000 years later? Has God's MO shifted? And I have to say, it has not. Suffering and persecution are God's ordained means, or part of God's ordained means to true glory. So that to me is how we kind of step outside that tit-for-tat, blow-for-blow mentality. Um, Justice is God's department, and our calling is that road of the cross. And we have, in that road, a sure hope of glory. So here, in in the place of kind of taking justice into our own hands, uh, he says we need to bless our persecutors. We need to bless them. 
again in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That is a strange thing to say. And Paul says the exact same thing in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I think to kind of define blessing, I think it just simply means to think well or to wish well for another person or to kind of wish God's favor upon them. And that that might come easily to us. We might be able to wish our tormentors well, maybe day one in, in, in rat-infested prison, but what about day, you know, year 10? Can we still do it then? To make it more difficult, I think it's not just blessing in word, but also in heart and in deed, We're to bless our enemies. Romans 12, 19-21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, the burning coals part sounds good. (laughs) But the point is, we don't do it by keeping burning coals on their heads. We do it by love and by doing good to them. So I think it can be difficult sometimes in our context to apply these exhortations because we're not in prison. We're not before the flames. No one's taking our children away. You know, we experience verbal attacks, but it's relatively minimal. We can look to other countries right now and see uh, what... Peter's audience was experiencing. But I think in our context, I kind of have thought of two categories to help us. Uh, One is that we experience attacks from within the church, and the other is that we experience attacks from outside of it. So from within first, I think of, I've been thinking a lot and studying like the Word of Faith uh, movement or Roman Catholicism, these, these sects of sort of former Christianity that have branched off and just become wayward. And these sects are taking vulnerable souls in hordes. They minimize or pervert the truth or attack the word of God itself. And these kind of things that make me angry. And my temptation is always to just kind of blast with those unsavory words I really do think these people are enemies and and persecutors of the truth. So that's from within, and we see that regularly, deal with it regularly. Uh, Outside the church, uh, one example, you've probably heard about the the new law that will probably be passed in California, um, attempting to change the sexual orientation of a person in any way that involves the exchange of money. And I thought, well, that's no big deal. counselor can just kind of not take any money and and that'll be fine Um, but if you think about the sale of books with that contain this idea the bible being one such book uh pastors draw salary what what will the pastors be able to preach on this subject now i i don't really anticipate like hordes of pastors going to jail in the next five years if this law is passed but what about 10 years from now or 20 years it seems to be a wave that's sweeping across all 50 states. So I, I do often wonder, what will the eyes of my children 
witness in their lifetimes. So, I do not like these people. I do not like my enemies. And I think it's okay to say that. But where I sin often is that I wish them ill. I belittle their intelligence, mock and deride them, and curse rather than to bless them. But we are called to bless these people. I've thought of four ways in which we can bless our persecutors. Uh, the first is in word. You know, simply speak positively or well of their positive traits that they do bear as image bearers of God. Or if they sit in positions of authority to speak uh, respectfully of them. Wishing them well in their presence or in their absence. Secondly, we can bless them in deed. You know, like Romans 12. A genuine, heartfelt service to them, fulfilling any needs that they might have. Thirdly, uh, we can pray for them. We can pray uh, not only that they would change their ways, which is, is good, we should do, but also for their well-being, for their physical and spiritual well-being. And fourthly, we can bless them in evangelism. God promised to Abraham that his seed would bless the nations. We know this is fulfilled ultimately in that one seed, Jesus Christ. But it's also carried out in the Great Commission that we bless the nations with the gospel. The purest form of love is to share the gospel with an enemy. That is what God did for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we bless our persecutors. Uh, that's our calling. That's our Christian work, our Christian vocation that God has called us to. Now, the reason I kind of keep calling it a vocation or a calling is here in verse, uh, in the next phrase, uh, verse nine. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So it's a calling. It's that vocation that, that every Christian is called to. I see this this section here is almost if we're looking at the the job description thing again as kind of that purpose statement. The purpose of this job is to do dot dot dot. And again, though, there's a difference, and that difference is the effectual nature of the call. God didn't just kind of broadcast a call and say anyone who wants to bless bless their enemies can be blessed. It's a direct result of who we are in Christ. This is the role we carry out in the Christian life. So the question is, I guess, uh, why? Why did God call us to this calling, to this vocation? Um, and he says here in this phrase, so that you may obtain a blessing. So God called us to the difficult calling of blessing our persecutors so that we might obtain a blessing. So this is kind of confusing in my mind, but here's the logic as best I understand it. It's not, you know, do these things and God will bless you. It's not sort of a labor for compensation type of arrangement. In fact, the word that the ESV translates obtain is really inherit, that you would inherit a blessing. An inheritance is not earned. Rather, I think, kind of in order of events, we see God wanted us to have a blessing, 
that comes with blessing even those who hate us. And because He desired that blessing for us, He called us to that vocation. But again, it's not a mere call of open broadcast. He also changed and enabled us through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so then, in God's economy, that suffering and self-sacrificial love are a means to our being blessed by God. So then, he turns us to Psalm 34 here, in verse 10. And really, I think he's answering the question, uh, what is this blessing? What does it look like? Is it an eternal blessing? Is it temporal? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? Uh, what is it? And so that's why he turns us to Psalm 34. So uh, verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the way I see these verses is that the, there's two blessings, and they sort of bracket the text. So at the beginning and at the end, we see blessings. And in the middle is taken up by that vocation, that holy calling that saints are called to. So first, look at the, uh, the vocation, the description of righteous living, which pleases God. First, he says, we're to tame the tongue. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn from evil. Let him do good. Let him seek peace, presumably with all men, and to pursue peace. That section there, that represents the calling on the lives of all men and the things which please the Lord. Then now looking at the blessings, that that front bracket the first blessing is whoever desires to love life and see good days so we all want to love life we all want to see good days that's a blessing we receive from god and on the on the back end for the eyes of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the lord is against those who do evil so those brackets describe what the blessing of god looks like on the like on the one hand love of life and good days and on the other hand god's face shining upon us and his, him hearing and listening to our prayers so two quick notes on on this first uh and we'll, we'll close after that first is that good days and loving life is not really set in contrast to persecution in fact here in first peter it's applied directly to suffering and persecution. See, see, the theologians of glory would say, "Well, because we're in Christ, we we don't get we don't need to have persecution. We can have riches. We can have glory." But the two things aren't set in contrast. Peter applies the good uh, suffering and persecution to the life, the good life, and loving life. So that kind of helps us to reorient our understanding of, of what the good life is. It has to be connected to our relationship with God and to the people around us. Uh, secondly, here, don't hear me saying that these works or attitudes are meritorious, especially unto salvation. 
Uh, it does seem, though, and this is, I'm trying to work through this myself and not step in a big steaming pile of heresy, so you can help me out afterwards if you want. Uh, but it seems that God does bless the lives of his children as a result of the life they lead in Christ by the power of the Spirit before him. Uh, and we have to recognize, of course, that the, the only one who truly led that righteous life perfectly in Psalm 34 was Jesus, and, and that whatever blessing we receive, we receive on his account, on his merits. But I think we also have to kind of reckon in our own minds with the fact that Peter is applying these concepts to the post-new birth, regenerate, Christ-united, persecuted Christian. So it does seem then that in some capacity, God blesses the obedience of his children. Um, and I'll leave it at that for now. So three points of summary here. Uh, firstly, uh, that we have been, we have, we have unity of Christian vocation amongst a great, beautiful, God-ordained variety within the church. Secondly, our calling is a calling not of that slug for slug victory, but demonstrating Christ-like character and blessing even those who hate us. And third, God has called us to the blessing of blessing those who will not bless in return. So in this, in this vocation, there is great blessing for us, which causes us in turn to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again. Amen. Amen.